If you would, take your Bibles and open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want to thank Dave and Titus for speaking the last two Sundays. Uh, I appreciate their efforts and what they had to say. I'm very grateful. We will continue our series of meditations. I thought we had finished when I left, but we will continue. And our meditation today will be on freedom. As our text, I want us to look at John chapter 8, specifically two verses, verses 32 and 36. And I think they may, in fact, be quite familiar to us. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then in verse number 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As familiar as these words are to us, there are, I think, some truly significant aspects of this incident that really escape us, escape our attention. And I want to bring that to our attention as we begin this meditation. First of all, the audience, the people to whom Jesus is speaking. And for this, we need to look at verses 30 and 31. By the way, keep your Bibles open because I won't be reading the whole passage, just looking at different verses. But verses 31 and 30, 30 and 31. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is addressing the many, apparently, who had put their faith in him, the Jews who had believed him. It is to these people that he speaks of setting them free. Um, We'll touch on this later, but I find it interesting that people usually quote verse number 32, not verse number 36. You know, the truth will set you free, um, not the Son sets you free, But as we've seen in Dave's sermon and the mine, I think, before that, uh, Jesus is the truth. And if the truth will set you free, that is the same as the sun setting you free. So, first of all, the audience. I think this is not what we expect. I think as we read the passage, we might expect that Jesus is dealing with people who are antagonistic to him. That certainly will happen, but that's not how it starts. The second thing that I think we miss is the nature of their responses, which certainly is not what we expect. If these are the people who had put their faith in him, who believed in him, how they respond to his remarks, I think, are really quite striking. Um, Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? To me, this is one of the most ludicrous statements that we find in the Gospels. A people whose history is marked by slavery, which in many ways is defined. I mean, the exodus happens because the Jews had been enslaved in Egypt. Um, And at at the time that Jesus is speaking to them, they're under the authority of the Romans. Have you looked around lately? How can you say we have never been enslaved? It may be that they have in mind a different kind of Enslavement, that they're talking about being spiritually free since they are the children of Abraham. They are not like the Gentiles who are enslaved by paganism, idolatry, false gods, etc. 
It has been suggested that what they have in mind is a passage like Amos 3.2. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. But that's only the first part of the verse. The second part is, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. I seem conveniently to have forgotten that. So verse 34, Jesus continues. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Jesus tells those who believe in him that if in fact they sin, they are a slave of sin. They are slaves to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family. He is, in fact, or she is a slave. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And even though you are descendants of Abraham, you are ready to kill me because of what I've said. And I think what he said had to do with being set free. They have a very different view of freedom than what Jesus does. I hope I'm not doing violence to scripture, but in Matthew chapter 9, we have the story of the calling of Matthew. As Jesus went out, or went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you will allow me, I would rework John 8 a bit and say, I have not come to give freedom or to set free or to liberate those who are free, but to set free those who are in bondage to sin, those who are in prisoners. Who are imprisoned? They are prisoners. Now, I would remind you again that Jesus is speaking to people who apparently have put their faith in Him. They believe in Him, but they do not see themselves as being in need of any type of liberation or freedom. Thus, in verse number thirty-seven, you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Again, I think the issue is that of freedom. The Jews who believe in Him believe that they are free. Jesus says, I've come to set you free. They reject that notion because of their view of freedom. Verse 38. I'm telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. For the second time, Jesus mentions that they are determined to kill him. And they move from Abraham is our father to finally they're saying God is our father. He's the only father that we have. Therefore, we are not in need of freedom. Verse number 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And then if you look at the end of the chapter, at the end of this incident, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds.
So they want to kill Jesus. They are determined to kill Jesus. They take up stones to kill Jesus. And who are these people? These are the people who believe in Jesus. It's quite startling. It is almost as if, if Jesus were here and he would say, come to me, and people would say, yes, we believe in you, we come to you. And then he says, I've come to set you free. And then people make fists. They're ready, they're ready to attack him. And it all has to do with the matter of freedom. What Jesus promises, they believe they already have. They don't have, they don't have a need for him to give what he says he's going to give them. So, let's look at the matter of freedom. And what is it that sets people off? I would argue it still does today. And we are not here to talk about the world. We're here to talk about God's people, the church. Um, Paul makes it very clear to the Corinthians, we're not here to judge the world. We're here to take care of ourselves. We are to, in fact, correct each other. And I would argue that it is the matter of freedom that is an issue not simply for the world, but for the church as, as well. So, uh, three things for us to consider. Uh, bear, me, bear with me if you would. First of all, let's look at the matter of freedom and the good, if you wish. What is good? I think one of the keys, if not the key to understanding freedom, what it is, is to see the connection between freedom and the good. In the early part of the 20th century, 1905 to be exact, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book entitled Heretics. Included in that was the following. We are fond of talking about liberty. And it's in quotes, but I would say freedom. Um, But the way we end up talking of it is an attempt to avoid discussing what is good. That is to say, people want to talk about freedom. They They don't want to talk about what is good. We are fond of talking about progress. That is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about education. That is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. What Chesterton implies is that there is a connection between freedom and what is good. And people want to talk about one so they don't have to talk about the other. But the two, in fact, are connected. About 40 years later, C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. And this is a part, a quote from that book. When all that says it is good has been debunked, what I want remains. In other words, when we get rid of the good, if you wish, then what remains is what I want. Is there a better description of our society today? In the first quote from Chesterton, Good is avoided. In the second, good is gone. It's, it's not a progression. It's a, it's a downward spiral, if you wish, in the 20th century. What we need as God's people is to understand that a proper and adequate understanding of freedom requires an adequate account of how freedom relates to the good. We can't simply say this is freedom over here and this is good over here. Um, They, in fact, belong together. But we live in a time when it is believed that people should be free to define what is good. I am free, therefore I get to define the good. In other words, the good does not stand on its own. Um, Because I have freedom, I get to define what it is. 
Um, we find in our society a naive assumption that we can safely and happily, I think I would emphasize happily, eliminate from public life any serious reflection on what is good in the name of protecting freedom. In other words, once you begin to talk about what is good, morality, then you're challenging people's freedom. So let's let people define what they think to be good so that they can, in fact, keep their freedom because freedom is the most important thing. If one defines good in a particular way, as the church does, this eliminates any sense of freedom. One is not free to define good on his or her own terms. And what we end up with is a simulation of freedom. It's a sim of freedom, if you wish. Um, it is an attempt to escape reality. I'm, I'm struck by this more and more every day, how that people will say the most absurd things and people defend their right to do that because they are free to do that. Um, what you end up with is not real reality, if you wish, but a brittle reality in which you are God and you get to define what is good. In the modern world, freedom has become the good. So Chesterton said we want to avoid talking about the good. Lewis says, yeah, good is debunked. Well, we're at a place now where good uh, freedom is, in fact, the good. Okay, so there's no morality. All we have is freedom. Freedom is seen as a uh, capability of people to pursue their own desires individually. It becomes the ultimate good. And so in this light, the words of Jesus might come to mean something quite different from what he intended. But you will remember that his original listeners wanted no part of what he offered because they thought they already had it. They already had freedom. They didn't need him to give them freedom. Freedom, we are free. Thank you very much. We don't need what you are selling. And I would suggest to you that many today, many among those who claim to be followers of Jesus, reject the notion of freedom as Jesus spoke of it because it differs radically from what we think. That's the first thing. Freedom and good. Now I want to talk about freedom and obligation. One author has observed, the modern person feels himself to be disengaged from the world around him rather than intrinsically related to it by family, tribe, birthplace, vocation, and so forth. He is expected to forge his own destiny by an exercise of choice. He is concerned less with what is right than what, with what his rights are. Rather, he grounds the former on the latter, that is to say, what is right is based on his rights. That is, freedom is now the good. The world for him is just a neutral space for his action, his free choice, and the greatest mysteries lie not outside himself, but within himself. In the modern world, we see freedom being defined as the absence of restraint. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. That the individual has the capability and the right to make whatever choices he or she wants. In the traditional world, freedom was seen in terms of obligation. You were born into a matrix of relationships. You didn't suddenly, suddenly just sort of pop up. 
You're born into a family. You have parents, perhaps siblings. You have grandparents, uh, extended family members. You have neighbors, fellow citizens, and the church, a religious community. Now, in the modern world, you can choose to be unfaithful to these obligations. You can say, yeah, I'm not going to listen to my parents. Um, I'm going to disrespect my grandparents. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to be a part of a religious community. You can do that. But it doesn't change the fact that you have obligations. But in the modern world, freedom is seen as uh, being freedom from obligation. That is to say, your parents have no hold on you or your family members or your neighbors even. You don't have to be a good neighbor. Your neighbors aren't the boss of you or even your brothers and sisters in Christ. We live in a world that has changed profoundly. The basic change is this. Personal choice has replaced relationships. This matrix into which you are born is now gone. And it's all about you, your rights, and your personal choice. Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Here we hear obligation. Um, One part I think that his disciples or his listeners weren't keen on due to what follows. Uh, You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In the book of James, freedom is mentioned twice. And I want to look at this uh, for a bit. We have in the past. But in chapter 1, verse number 25, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You'll notice that in both passages, James speaks of freedom and law together, that they belong together. The perfect law that gives freedom, the law that gives freedom. Um, This presents a lot of problems for people today because freedom is seen as the opposite of law. Law is someone telling you what you have to do. It's obligation. And freedom is, I can do whatever I want. And yet for James, the two belong together. Let me just back up a bit in James 1 to give some context. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what, is, what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. In these verses, James gives us a comparison of what we should not be like and what we should be like. We should not be like those who listen but don't do. You know, they hear what it has to say, but they don't do. And if you wish, there's no obligation or they have no sense of obligation. Oh, I need to obey this. I need to do what it says. Um, the analogy that James uses, I think, can be a bit confusing for people um, because I, I think in our minds we think of you glance in the mirror and you forget what you look like. So let's say you've gone out to eat and you suspect that there's a piece of spinach stuck in your front teeth and so you glance in the mirror and then you look away and then you're like, was there spinach there or not? And then you go back. That's not what James is talking about. 
He's talking about someone who studies themselves, their face, and not in a narcissistic way, but they have a good sense of what they look like. In the ESV, it says uh, someone who looks intently. You're really studying your face in the mirror. And then you leave and you have no clue what in fact it is that you've looked like or what you've looked at or what you look like. And the point is not that one glances at scripture and then they forget, in fact, what it says. Okay. The problem is that the person who looks in scripture then goes away. I have no obligation to do what the scripture tells me to do. So what we should be like is those who do not forget what they have heard, but they do what it says, what it teaches, what it commands. And here the analogy is of a man who looks intently into the law, not a mirror, but the law, and he continues to do this. And it is seen in the fact that he doesn't forget. He does not forget. He does what it commands. One of the things that's striking about this passage is that James uses the word law, because up to this point he's been talking about the word. In verse number 8, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. 21, humbly accept the word. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the word. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word. Okay? But then verse number 25, he shifts to law. Okay? What's he doing? Why the switch? Um, I would say he's still talking about the word. Okay? I, I don't think that he switched topics. Okay? But he uses the word law because he uses the word freedom. That in fact, if he wasn't talking about freedom in verse number 25, I think he would have still use the word. But he's talking about freedom and therefore he wants to talk about the law. Okay? It is the perfect law. God's law is in fact perfect. His commands are perfect. Our obligations make sense. These are what God would have us to do. We're made in his image. He knows what we need to do. Um, in Leviticus chapter 19, we have a series of commands and we have the recurring phrase, I am the Lord. Okay? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am the Lord your God. We find this time after time. The point is clear. It is God's nature that determines what is to be commanded. Okay? So we are made in God's image God has told us what we are supposed to do. We are obligated to do that. And true freedom is, in fact, tied to obligation. We see it quite the opposite. We see freedom as, I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever it is I want. But James, I think, is very clear that, in fact, we are obligated. We have been set free, and now we are obligated to keep the truth. And think about it for a moment. The law, the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, Moses, okay? When did that happen? Were the Israelites still enslaved? Or had they been set free? They, in fact, were free. And it is to free people that God gives the law. I think to us, we really have to get our minds around that because to us, you give laws or commands to slaves. People under you, this is what you're supposed to do. And if you're a free person, you can do whatever you want. 
No. Freedom and obligation go together. Now that God has liberated these people, 600,000 Israelites are brought out miraculously. The children are learning about going through the Red Sea. God graciously, by his power and his love, he brings them. And where does he bring them? To a place where he can tell them, this is how you're supposed to live. And this, in fact, is what Jesus is doing in the gospel. These people are believing in him. And now he says, okay, this is how you're supposed to live. Now that you are free... You're free to do the things that I've commanded if you continue in my word. And I think we really struggle with that. For us, freedom negates obligation. And the gospel, freedom and obligation go together. That is, in fact, the good news. We, are, we have been told how we are supposed to live. We do these things not to be set free. We've been set free. The Lord Jesus has given his life, and now we are free. And now that we are free, we are to do what he commands. So the third thing for us to consider here before we leave today, what is freedom? What is freedom? Just a side note here. Uh, Much of this material under this question is taken from the sermon I preached when Jason and Gwen got married uh, over nine years ago. What is freedom? To be free is to realize your inmost nature and to give it fullest expression by abiding in God's word, by obeying God's commands, by doing and not just hearing. The simple act of choosing is not freedom, as many would tell us today. As I said at at their wedding, one may choose to play a violin with a hacksaw instead of a bow, but is that freedom? One may choose to pour sand into the gas tank of his or her car, but is that freedom? One may choose to eat something poisonous, but is that freedom? The simple act of choosing is not freedom. Choosing well is freedom. That is, choosing to obey. Freedom is an act toward an end. We have been set free, and now we are free. And our freedom is directing us toward what is right, what is good. Augustine put it this way, freedom is the capacity to achieve certain worthwhile ends. Not do whatever you want. No, there's very specific things. We have obligations, we have commands. Freedom is directed toward those ends. Freedom can never be sought or achieved without first discerning the ends which we should desire to to pursue. In other words, okay, God has set me free. God has saved me. What am I supposed to do? What is my life about? We have been given his commands. We are to follow his ways. In our world, however, freedom is choice. It is the good. Freedom is the good. What is chosen is secondary. And the goodness, the morality, the right or wrongness of it is unimportant. I've really been struck in the last week in just reading the news how people just make the most ludicrous statements. And then I realize, oh, the rightness, the wrongness, the morality, you can't judge. What they choose is secondary. The ability to choose is primary. It is all important. 
And I think when you see that, then it, I think our world begins in, in, a, in a tragic way to make sense. But among God's people, we need to be careful that we don't follow that path. Like, um, I'm a Christian. I've been set free. I'm free indeed. So I can do whatever I want. And no one should tell me. No one should judge me. No. Freedom is not the most important thing. What God commands, what God says is right, that is more important. And by God's grace, we have been given the freedom to then do what he commands. To say that what is chosen is secondary is in fact not realistic. It really isn't. Um, You could think of any number of examples of people saying, um, I choose to play basketball on the 101 freeway. I have the freedom to do that. And yeah, that's not realistic, is it? Or I may choose to do harm to others. That's, you can't judge me. You can't put your, your morality on me. No, no, no. What is chosen, I think, is not of secondary importance do not have the freedom to do anything we want. Some resent any kind of boundaries or rules, but that's the way God made the world. And he has set us free as he did Israel, and now he tells us how we are supposed to live. This is what Jesus is trying to say to these Jews who have believed in him, and they will not have it. From Jason and Gwen's wedding, on this day, Jason and Gwen have chosen well, to make a life together as husband and wife. We should not, or we are not naive, nor should we be, as Jason and Gwen speak their vows. We will hear words like, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. We do not imagine that life will always be easy and pleasant. Even on this happy, happy day, we know better. We know that life is not always onward and upward. There are sometimes valleys, even dark valleys. But on this day, we are reminded that we are not meant to live alone. From this day on, Jason and Gwen will live together as husband and wife. And as we watch them and support them, we trust that by God's grace, they will grow into the persons God made them to be. Thus far, they have grown within the context of family and friends. And I said to the congregation, and many of you have been a part of that process, we are not now abandoning them but we recognize that something new has been created, a marriage in which they can continue to grow. One more thing, and this is the key to it all. Without a relational connection to God, we cannot properly love others. We cannot be who we were created to be. We become other than who we are meant to be. We must, in fact, have a relationship with God. The Jews claim God is our father. Abraham's our father. But they want nothing to do with what Jesus has to say about freedom. At the end, I said to Jason and Gwen, and I will say it to you from the Apostle John, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is, in fact, in the person of Jesus Christ that we find the love of God supremely expressed. And this is how God showed us his love. He sends his son, and his son, as we heard today in the promise of, for, of forgiveness, has come to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. That's us, those who were enslaved to sin. He has come to give us freedom, that we will be truly free. And what does that mean? Free to do what is right. Free to do what he commands. By God's grace, we love God because he first loved us. And he sent his son to show his love. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which many in the church have allowed the world, unbelievers, non-believers, to define the words they use. One of those words is freedom. It's become an idol, I think, in our society. It's seen as the highest good, that people's rights trump everything else. You can't tell me what to do. And as Christians, we believe that we have been set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we haven't been set free to do what we want. We've been set free to obey his commands. In the same way that you liberated Israel from the Egyptian bondage, you have set us free from the bondage of sin. Not so that we can now do whatever we want, but that by your grace, the gift of your spirit, we can obey you and do what is right. We can abide in the teachings of your son, the Lord Jesus. May we think on these things, meditate on them in the days to come. Come to realize how much we have been affected, dare I say, infected by the thinking of the world. And rather than allowing scripture to define things, we allow non-believers to define. We thank you for the Lord Jesus that he indeed came to proclaim freedom and he gave his life that we might be free. By your grace, may we be obedient sons and daughters because we are now free people. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence every moment as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.